listeners. Welcome to the first episode of the Making Sense of Tech Law podcast at SCL Student Bytes with me, Andrew Lane. I wonder how you came to a tech law podcast today. Maybe you are looking for that something niche to say on your VAC scheme. Maybe you were inspired by the latest SpaceX launch to become an astronaut. Or the next best thing, a tech lawyer. Maybe you are browsing for takeaways you haven't yet ordered from and you saw SCL Student Bytes. Well, let me tell you, if you are looking for a lunch here, technology has not advanced quite that far, but in our following interview, we will hopefully be there for our first and second kind of listener and help you make sense of the key issues concerning technology lawyers today. To introduce our series, we will begin with a topic that represents more than most the way that tech law and regulation has moved in recent years from a specialised genre of the law to one which speaks of some of the biggest legal issues of our day, if not all. That topic is COVID-19 contact tracing apps which are being developed in over 30 countries in both the public and private sector. Anna Hoffman has kindly agreed to join us and share about how the law might develop to respond to these challenges. Anna is a barrister at Four Pump Court, a leading commercial set with a specialisation in technology and IT law. She grew up in Switzerland, read history and politics at Oxford, and studied public policy in Berlin before coming to the bar. Most notably, she was instructed, together with Lord Garnier QC and Tom Cleaver, to act for Sir John Major in the case of the prorogation of Parliament in 2019, intervening on the side of Gina Miller. She recently co-wrote an extended article on the ethics and issues of contact tracing apps with her Chamber's colleagues Ian Munro and Anthony Spake QC, which is available on the Four Pump Core website. Anna, thank you so much for appearing on our first podcast episode today. What attracted your attention to this particular topic? Thank you so much for having me. I am at the moment practicing at, at Four Pump Court. I just yep. started very recently. Yeah. Um, so uh, probably still quite close to um, the mostly student listeners here. The main focus areas are around technology, IT law, construction, shipping, but also some insurance work. It's a a broad uh, commercial set, so we do a lot of these things, but I think we have a particular interest in in technology law and obviously also quite a close connection with SEL. Now, this concrete interest in tracing technology is because I am also very interested in regulatory matters and um, data protection issues and, and human rights issues more generally. And, and this just seemed like a very interesting crossover between, between these two areas where we have a new technology that's being suggested and that's untested, untried, and also not very well regulated. Um, and then um, this collaboration came about where two of my excellent colleagues were also interested in this topic and we co-authored this article. And so to dive right into this topic from the off, and of course, approaching it not as uh, data experts, but as lawyers, what do you think it is important for us to know about how these apps work and how they developed in the first place? Basically, in response to the coronavirus pandemic, a lot of nations um, felt that it would be useful to use technology to try to enhance their response. You've probably heard about various contract tracing apps. The first versions of these have been out in East Asia for a while. The basic idea is that you have an app on your phone which traces which other people you come in contact with. This is um, usually done two ways or a combination of these two ways. So there's, of course, the 
actual location tracing, which could be done, um, usually via GPS, that is not very common. That is, um, for example, the South Korean app has a location tracing element because they also wanted to have that capability to try to um, enforce or supervise quarantine restrictions, actually. And some versions of the Philippine and um, Israeli app also use location tracing. However, that has been criticized as a probably not being necessary and um, harnessing too much data about where people actually go b not being very precise because for example if you're in the same building but on different floors you would be shown at the same location but not actually in contact so the second way this is done and that's um more common and that is the one also being discussed in this country in the uk is proximity tracing so you don't actually look at where people are in terms of location but you look at um, whether they come into close contact with someone else. Um, this works via low um, energy Bluetooth. And the idea is that basically you have a phone with the app and another person has another phone with the app. And once you come into a certain distance of each other, and there is some debate as to how accurate that actually is, whether um, you can be pr precise as to the meter. But if you come into a certain proximity with each other, that would be recorded and you have a proximity tracing. That of course could be quite useful because if you later on proved um, uh, to have COVID uh, symptoms um, or did a test that revealed that you had um, the disease, um, then you could trace in a way who you'd been in contact with and you could kind of move out from this permanent lockdown into a situation where you only had to isolate um, certain parts of the population, which is, of course, the attraction of using these apps. And going one step further in, within proximity tracing, which is the predominant um, global north model for such apps, there's debate as to the correct model to be used, isn't there, especially between the UK and Europe? There has been this, this main debate within the non-location tracing apps, which is the bigger part, um, between decentralized and centralized apps, as you say. And, and very briefly, the key difference there is where the data is stored. So in a centralized system, once the two phones have recognized that there, there was contact, this information um, would be uploaded to a centralized server and uh, this data would be stored there. So for example, the system being suggested by NHS uh, X and being developed and currently tested on the Isle of Wight is a centralized system where they would record this centrally and have this storage and explicitly say that that would be useful because then you can have further you know, research and could, could have a wider view of the population and how it behaves. In a decentralized system, you do not have such a central server storage. You, you only store this information on the individual phones and um, and you would not have the central database in a way. Um, there has been quite fierce privacy debate um, about these different models. What you say about the distinction between Europe and the UK is broadly right. France is another notable example of a country that has already launched an app uh, very recently, a few weeks ago, and is currently using it, and that's a centralized app. Uh, the UK has not yet launched this app and there's interestingly some suggestion that they might actually be considering switching over to a decentralized version. Um, there's some indication of that happening. For example, they've instructed a Swiss-based firm, Zulke Engineering, to explicitly look into that option and, and it might very well be that we actually might be switching 
to, to the decentralized version because there has been a lot of criticism of the centralized app. And who are the key critics of the centralized app? Um, so, for example, the Parliamentary Joint Committee of Human Rights has recommended that in its current form, actually, a rollout would not be ideal or would not be recommended because of the concerns about data privacy. And there have been a number of academics that criticized this, um, for example, um, a leading um, voice has been Professor, Professor Lillian Edwards, who has actually drafted a safeguarding bill that could um, enhance the safety of these systems. There's just been a lot of critique, and not only in the UK. Germany is a quite an interesting example that I've been following, where they initially wanted to have a centralized app, but then because the critique was so strong and there was so much criticism from um, data protection uh, organizations and from academics, they actually decided to switch to a decentralized model. And what are their primary objections? I mean, has there been any theme or key sticking point? So if you are processing data centrally, um, you need to make sure that this processing um, if it's personal data that you're processing, is GDPR compliant. And that is, of course, a, a concern that's been voiced. And even though they have done an initial short um, data protection impact assessment of the trials of the Isle of Wight, the, there has been a lot of critique of the way it's currently set up. It is clear that this storing of personal data about who you've been in contact with would amount to personal data, so processing of personal data under the GDPR. Um, it, it doesn't have to be, personal data isn't defined as, for example, your name or, or these specific identifiers. It's, it's just necessary for the data um, to be specific to an individual and for it to be possible to identify that individual if one tried. And that is clearly the case here. Um, additionally, there's this special category data within the GDPR that is extra sensitive. One could say, for example, um, you know, political uh, uh, memberships, um, ethnicity, uh, racial origin, these kind of things, but also crucially health data. So, and for this kind of data, you need specific consent and explicit consent for that to be processed. And, it's interesting that there is, there is, of course, a possibility of, in the usual way, having a disclaimer and then people having to click, yes, 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 I consent to all of these things without actually thinking about this. But that might not be good enough um, for this specific hurdle. And that's something that needs to be investigated. Plus, also, there's a large concern around how genuine this consent would actually be. If we look at the East Asian examples, which are, of course, more extreme um, for example, the, the Chinese app, uh, or there are various apps, I believe, but one of the big apps that uses a QR code as well, is voluntary as well. You don't have to sign up to this app. It's just that without this app, you can't really go anywhere anymore. And that is a key concern, this idea that, yes, it could be voluntary. Yes, it's opt-in. But um, if you don't, you might actually not be able to go to certain places or your employer might actually require you to do these things to have this app public transport might require you to have it it's it's all these access things which are important to solve from a regulatory point of view because of course there and that's repeated across a lot of these tech conversations that you'll hear there are issues that you can solve with code but then there are other issues 
that you need a regulatory response to. And these questions as to how could people possibly be coerced into using this or who could require you to use this are really crucial questions that need to be looked at. And some people say they need to be looked at before you actually roll out this app. Taking now the alternative, the decentralized app, there are a slightly different set of issues, aren't there? One of the more uh, glamorous issues in this area of law is perhaps the regulation of big tech. And when it comes to the decentralized apps, which are provided in part by Apple and Google, that's kind of the territory restrained to, isn't it? I think it's interesting to look at this move that Apple and Google are providing a lot of the, the basic, the protocols that are then needed to build out these apps, the decent, a lot of the decentralized apps. And I should clarify here that they're not providing an app. They're just providing this crucial protocol um, that is especially important to have when you are, for example, working with an, with an Apple uh, device. Um, there was a big controversy between France and Apple that you might have seen because of one specific issue where Apple didn't want to support a centralized app. And that really shows the leverage and the power that these companies can have. Um, in this case, um, data protection um, advocates might say it's worked out in favor of data protection because what happened was that um, apparently um, Bluetooth for it to be active um, requires on, on, on the kind of normal or the previous version of, of the iPhone software it required the iPhone to be on. So the screen to be unlocked and that obviously drained a lot of batteries. So there was a, an update that Apple built that enabled this Bluetooth energy to be available in the background, um, which would be energy preserving and would basically make the technology functional. And this small detail had to be engineered by Apple for its devices. And they said that they would only make this available for decentralized apps. Mm. And France obviously with that because they wanted to create a centralized app, but they also quite would have, they would have liked to have this add-on because that obviously makes things much more functional. And that shows how important these networks are. The other basic point is that obviously now this protocol is being widely used. And here we can observe something that has also been called network power. It's just this idea that they are now obviously providing this infrastructure. And the more apps use this infrastructure, the more attractive it will be for new joiners, countries that don't have an app at the moment, to actually um, also use this. And then in the end, probably what we're going towards at the moment is, is that most apps, most tracing apps will use this protocol. And actually there's been some interesting reasoning in France, which um, is, the only mainly um, centralized version we see out there at the moment who said that actually this was a reason why they wanted to have a centralized app because this had to be a question of national sovereignty as they put it and they didn't want to be as reliant on on these international tech giants in building out their their app infrastructure it's a really fascinating situation isn't it almost one of role reversal in which uh, Apple and Google have intervened to almost uphold data protection standards against nations such as France. What do you think about that? Is there some significance to that? I mean, the headlines around big tech and data are often the failure of self-regulation, the encroachment of surveillance capitalism. Do you think Apple and Google's facilitation of these apps might represent a lasting change in their sense of responsibility, or is there some underlying motive we have yet to discover? 
Well, I'm not sure about lasting. From what I've picked up from some of the debate, it might actually be that there is a genuine commitment or a genuine fear rather in this instance that these technologies, these apps could, could be very much abused. Because one point that's made very often is that if you build a centralized um, app and store these things centrally, it might already be not entirely safe in a, in a jurisdiction in a country like the UK, but what about other countries? What if you have this capacity and actually put it in the hands of far less stable regimes with uh, far less honorable agendas, potentially? So there might be a genuine concern there. I don't want to detract from that at all, that there is um, a concern about privacy preserving um, uh, points there. A more cynical approach um, is something that I've heard more and more often is this idea that actually big data isn't the really important game in town anymore. Yes, data is, is still very important and, and it's being collected everywhere. But the real focus of a lot of the academics and a lot of the debate has shifted on towards infrastructure and how important it is who builds that infrastructure. I mean, in, in terms of very real physical infrastructure, we've seen this debate around Huawei building out um, infrastructure and 5G capacity in Western countries and also in this country, it's been a big debate. But also in terms of software infrastructure, apparently this is, this is super important and this could also just be seen and clearly is a way in which Google and Apple are cementing their, their reach. So the concern about private companies, if I've heard correctly, is more their infrastructure than what they're collecting in this specific instance with contact tracing apps. It's more a question of potential of what they could do. I was wondering if, if you could respond to that. How do you think it could be used? Do we have any indications of where this might be leading from European examples or elsewhere? Yes, that was a very good summary, uh, actually, of what I tried to say. It's, it's these future implications. And it is interesting because we're very much in it still, but it varies, obviously, according to region and according to what different national discourses would tolerate or not, not contemplate. For example, in, in Hangzhou, in, in China, it's been suggested that this health app now just stays, um, that they want to keep this permanently. Obviously, it's framed in a very positive light of, you know, like we can support our citizens better and you will be healthier and all these things. But it's basically probably there to stay. Um, it could also, if these apps are really rolled out, and that is, of course, a big if in, in especially some Western countries because of these large concerns. It might very well be that we don't see a large rollout of these apps, but rather rely on manual contract tracing and these kind of things because the concerns are simply too big. But if we were to go there, and some countries are clearly going there, like France and Germany and Italy and Switzerland, you need to think about who could require certain health statuses for certain activities, um, like this access QR code that's being widely used in, in Eastern Asia. Um, maybe not in front of every shop. Maybe you don't have to, after Corona, show that you're healthy or don't have certain symptoms. But um, if it becomes easier, of course, to have or to demonstrate a certain health status, 
it might be easier to require this in certain employment contexts, um, always with a, with a justification, of course. But um, that might be one of, the, one of the regulatory things to look at. Um, it might also bring a lot of positive things. I, I don't only want to focus on the, on the negative, on, on the problematic areas, but of course, the idea that with this blended technology and 5G, you could do remote surgery in places very far away, that, that could be a great thing. Um, and, and you might also, even, even having the health checks um, done remotely is, is super helpful, especially also in developing country contexts. However, there is always this question of, how could this be used to, for example, exclude certain parts of, this, of the population and, and these issues? So if certain requirements become more popular that require a smartphone, for example, some people don't have a smartphone because either they're well, too young or they can't afford one or a lot of the elderly population just simply doesn't have a smartphone and would find it very difficult to, you know, only have GP appointments online, for example, because they, they're not used to that and, and they wouldn't necessarily know how to operate it. And then they might not necessarily use that service. So that's all these things to, to think about. And obviously there's also people who might not want to use such a service because they're afraid of tracing. I mean, the whole idea of tracing might sound alarming to people with, for example, precarious residence um, permissions here. And if that gets linked to health more and more, there's this interesting linkage, which might lead a little bit far, uh, further away from the contract tracing app here. But there's this interesting idea that if you have too much tracking and tracing involved in the health sector, a lot of the very vulnerable people might no longer actually use this service. That would obviously be a really devastating outcome for many of the most vulnerable in our society. Do you think there are sufficient protections in place to stop that from happening? I know you mentioned the draft bill on safeguards, but that has yet to be taken up by the government at the time of this recording. On a UK level, will Brexit also affect those legal protections? Well, with Brexit, it's interesting. So obviously we're not entirely sure what will happen this winter. However, the Charter of Rights, not the ECHR, will no longer be valid on the current uh, prediction of how things are how things are going. I mean, there might of course be some transition agreement, and we'll we'll see about that. It's I think beyond the legal frameworks of Brexit. It's it's just interesting to see how the UK will think about developing systems that are compatible with the rest of Europe. Because I mean, France is an exception here, but one big issue, of course, with for example, a contract tracing app is that if you were to develop a centralized app, as is currently the plan here, that is national, it's not interoperable, so in that compatible with, with the other apps that are widely used in, in Europe. And, and that is, of course, a concern if you wanted to travel or you know, um, interact with, with people who use a different app. So that's a concern. And that tendency to potentially go a different way also for example to not participate in some of the purchasing schemes around the protective equipment and all these things i think that's just something that might increase after a, a harder brexit if that were indeed to happen and that's something to 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 watch out for because the regulatory standards and these things might develop in in, in europe and then the question is very much for the uk what what happens here is there a requirement to have similar standards or will it just be a more national response? So do you think that that potential post-Brexit divergence might have an impact on the use of the GDPR in the UK or the strength of it? 
now going into territory where we're speculating about Brexit, but the GDPR provisions and all these things, they, uh, they, they, will, they will be operative. And there will be more discussion around the GDPR. And I think there needs to be more in-depth analysis of, of, of the tensions that exist within the GDPR, because it's not obviously uh, as, as a silver bullet. It, it, it provides these proportionality assessments. It provides the need for safeguards and all these things that in certain situations need to be balanced against each other. So in addition to consent, for example, which we've discussed, there's also the requirement that, um, you know, you could say, you know, it's required for public interest, but um, it is very much the case that these trade-offs need to be looked at and whether it is actually necessary in the face of the emergency to to, to, to have a centralized app in, in this version. And, and there isn't really a technical answer and there isn't also an answer in the GDPR, but it's rather an assessment that parliament, the courts, and, and also individuals need to, need to make for themselves. So on the one hand, we have the issue of UK divergence on regulatory standards and the need for a closer assessment of the GDPR. I guess they're both factors which speak to the issues of big tech's interest in infrastructure. I'm thinking particularly of health infrastructure. Do you think that nations by themselves can really regulate companies such as Apple or Google, or are we really looking at some kind of global regulatory solution to really uh, address these issues? It would certainly be good to have more transnational supervision. Um, that's obviously a topic that comes up from a variety of angles, be that regulation, be that taxation. We are in this very difficult situation where we have large corporations like Apple, Google, but also those that have kind of these content platforms like YouTube and Twitter where there has been this debate in the last years about increasing their responsibility and seeing them actually as large actors that also publish news and, and this question, to what extent they do that and to what extent they're responsible for the content. There's this very interesting debate at the moment going on with Twitter that people might have seen um, regarding more fact-checking, regarding their responsibility or not to you know call out certain things but what we have seen is very much a call for more also internal regulation so we have more fact checking we have more taking down of you know hateful uh, material but there's this persistent theme that there's it's not enough there's there's not enough regulation and at the moment, things are very much national. They are a very much national response. And some of the, the Google, the right to be forgotten cases have shown also how limited that can be in its effect. Because even if references to you are deleted within a certain national uh, frame, servers in other jurisdictions might still have that information. What does it mean to delete content from a national level on where, where things are international. And that is very much something that 
we'll have to come to terms with and we'll have to, to look into. It's, it's similar to other challenges that are transnational, like climate change, where national responses seem to be inadequate. It also seems like, sadly, with the coronavirus at the moment, we're very much back to national responses. Actually, one interesting thing to see about these apps is how national the response has been. Every um, country kind of trying to develop their own app somehow. There was very little coordination. And then actually it was the Google Apple protocol that then added some kind of cohesiveness to this process. There were, of course, other initiatives as well, I should mention. There was a very similar protocol developed, DP3T, um, also by British academics, that is very similar. And there was also briefly initiative by European scientists to, to develop a kind of European framework. But it seems like now very much at the Apple Google API is, is the game in town. So this is a very long-winded answer to saying, yes, probably need more trans transnational regulation, but it just seems unlikely to emerge at the moment. So pushing for more national and then potentially cooperated regulation seems the way forward. Anna, that really brings to an end our discussion on the issues surrounding contact tracing apps. Thank you so much again for your time. Thank you for having me. Anna's article on this topic can be read on the Four Pump Core website. So if you're looking for more details on certain aspects of our conversation, that's the place to go. That ends the first episode of our Making Sense of Tech Law podcast. You can now order a takeaway, rewatch the SpaceX launch, or prepare for your VAC scheme. Thanks very much. <laughs>